creative journey It's easy to get lost But don't worry, you'll lift off Sometimes you just need A creative pep talk Hey, you're listening to the Creative Pep Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Andy J. Pizza. This week is a replay of 317. Instead of taking a week off, we decided to go back into the history books of Creative Pep Talk and find an episode that's one of our favorites, a fan favorite, and also one that slots nicely into the topics we're talking about right now. This episode has an element of improving your creative practice through subtraction, which is a topic we're going to go deep into in the next episode, the finale of our Human Rhythms series. But until then, enjoy this episode. It's about if you are sick of your own work, how to make your work something you love again in five steps. This was a favorite of mine. Hope you love it. Hope you hope you get a lot of pep out of it. And uh, I will see you next week. Thanks, y'all. Every once in a while, I get into this place with my work where I'm looking over my portfolio, my my body of work, my back catalog, if you will. There's a lot of words you can use to describe what that what that collection of pieces uh, is. There's another kind of phrase for it. And I look over everything and I'm just kind of, you know, disgusted. Just, just like, oh, what even is going on here? I am the worst. How did it? It's so noisy. There's there. It's so I don't know. I can't even remember what I liked about this thing. And the temptation in those moments is is to feel like, man, I gotta add a, I gotta add something fresh. I gotta add something new. I gotta go see like what's going on out there. What's cool? What's what's relevant? And I gotta add some of that in here because this thing is out of date. This thing is expired. You know, you ever feel like that? You ever look over your work and just get disgusted with yourself? (laughs) Just have a really hard time remembering what the heck was good about this thing in the first place? It kind of reminds me of the first house that we had. (laughs) It was a nightmare. We went in there and this thing had 80s wood paneling and under that was like 70s wallpaper. We actually started pulling up the carpet and guess what was under the carpet? Another layer of carpet. (laughs) It was carpet all the way down. And when you're in that situation, what do you do? You add a fresh coat of carpet, man. We just laid another layer of carpet down on there. Of course, we didn't do that. <laughs> when you're in that situation, you don't need another layer of carpet. You don't need to add anything. What you need to do is subtract. You need to pull the carpet back. You need to get underneath to the foundation of these things and remember what was actually great about this thing before we started piling up and keeping up with others and trying to be relevant and stick with the times. Like what was the original intention? 
what was this all about, this, this art game? What was I trying to do? And you pull back those layers and you see those beautiful wood floors and you say, man, what in the world? Why would you ever put something on these beautiful, gorgeous wood floors? I can tell you why. To be cool. But art isn't about being cool. It's so easy to get in that temptation of let's throw another layer on. Let's throw another layer on of fluff of thin veiled crap just to get a little bit of what we actually want. It's not being cool. Cool is a superficial reach at something much more solid under every layer of cool and fluff is the solid foundation, the solid desire of not being cool, but to connect. What we want is connection. What we want in our work isn't short-term success. We want something that is foundational in essence that comes from a true place that will connect to true places in others. And so if you are in that situation where your portfolio, your collection of work, your body of your back catalog is disgusting you, do not add a fresh coat of carpet. Let's pull those things back and let's build on your real foundation and find some solid stuff to build a portfolio that won't just be cool, but will truly connect. Let's go. The first thing we're going to do is strip back the layers. We're going to pull it back and get back to what this thing is really all about. You know, Immanuel Kant, who's considered by many to be the greatest philosopher of all time, was really obsessed with this idea of a priori. And it was just this, he wanted to figure out, you know, what were the what were the foundational building blocks of our perspective before experience? You know, what are we bringing to the table as humans? And he had a, he had a few different things, but one of them was taste. He thought that your personal taste, and sometimes he called it a common sense. Common sense meaning, you know, sense, taste is a sense. It's like a sensory thing and common sense meant why do we, why do large groups of people all agree often about whether a painting is good or bad? They have a sense in common. They have taste in common. And he believed that this was a priori. It was one of just a handful of things that we came already pre-programmed with. And what I love about this as a jumping off point, just get over whether you think it's, um, that's true or that's not true. Just shut up. I'm not asking you if this is truth. I'm sorry. I'm, I didn't mean to get angry. I'm just saying, like, let's roll with it as a thought experiment. See if anything comes from it. Let's go back to what creativity is all about. When we talk about creativity, I think one of the things that we get confused by is this idea of it being subjective. Yes, creative work 
is subjective. But what does subjective mean? I think sometimes we think of subjective as, well, it's anybody's opinion, which means there is no definition of good, which is not true. Subjective means that you define what is good. And if you don't actually put in the work of defining what is good and creating, you know, really setting your targets and really understanding what is it that I'm looking for, you can really get out of whack and you can try to be all things to all people and throw all these layers of carpet on and try to stay relevant to everybody. But even I'd take it one step further and I'd go back to this a priori definition of taste. It's not even that you choose what's good or you define what's good is that what is good what tastes good to you creatively isn't even most of the time your choice it's not an intellectual thing i found that the most powerful place to create from is that visceral level we're talking about this is what makes guilty pleasure so helpful and useful is those are the things that we like that we wish we didn't. We're not even choosing to like those things. They can tell you a lot about your visceral foundational taste. And so let's strip it back to the things. Yeah, go back and think of other people's work. Sure, that that hits you in a way that you didn't even want to cry. You wish this thing didn't move you. It's not even cool. Like, go back to those things. But let's strip it back to your own work. Let's look back. There's so many times I look back at something I made when I go back to stuff I was making in 2008, 2000, you know, 2010. Yes, if I made 50 things that year, 47 of them are not great. 47 of them them were me adding layers of carpet. But there's usually three that have the essential qualities of the stuff that I'm making now. I've just gotten better at making those things more consistently. I think that's kind of the game. The game isn't like to get better and better. It's to get more consistently hitting that visceral taste. And so now if I make 50 things in a year, maybe 10 of them, maybe 15 of them are getting to that a priori taste hitting me in the feels, hitting me in the taste buds, lighting it up. But go back. Because sometimes you're going to find those hardwood floors. You know, you've seen it. You know, people like uh, one of my favorite musicians of all time, Sufjan Stevens. He had an album recently, Carrie and Lowell, stripped back, recorded in his apartment. You can actually hear the fan running. It's very romantic. You can hear like he's in this Brooklyn apartment with no air conditioning. He's got the fan on, but he's not, you know, the album he made before this had layer and layer and layer and 25 minute songs and all these bells and whistles and electronics and all that stuff. And it got buried. It was layers of carpet. It was cool. It's not that those explorations are for nothing. Sometimes you got to go into those crazy explorations to find stuff, kind of accidentally by making weird stuff, right? But then there's a pendulum swing back to subtract and pull away. And it got back to just this guy and a guitar songwriting. So what does your unplugged album sound like? Let's remember what was this all about at the start. Let's go back to a priori. And what I want you to do is look back through all the stuff you've ever made. And I want to challenge you to find the oldest thing that feels the truest to who you are and what you believe in and use that as a prompt.
All right, the second thing you got to do when you're t- working on these walls, like sometimes there are, there's so much stuff. There's so many, there's stains on the walls. There's, you know, stuff that bled through and you got to get the kills. It's a type of primer and you got to prime those walls before you do whatever you're going to do to them. Right. So you got to cover up all that stuff. Sometimes we've gotten so mixed up with the noise of all the stuff that we've added. And we've, we're, it's so loud in our brains that as we go to create, we get halfway through making making something and be like, I don't even know what's going on. And I think it comes from not priming first. And so what we let's what we should do is let's, you know, get the little ginger in the sushi, do a little palate cleanser before we just jump into trying a totally different dish, trying to create something totally different. Let's just cleanse the palate with a primer. And what I mean by that is let's spend some time really preparing ourselves to make that next thing that we're going to make with fresh eyes and a fresh palate and, and really cleanse it. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to take some of those things from step one, take a few of those pieces, go back through your back catalog, go back through your portfolio, go back through your, (laughs) I don't remember what other words I was using for that. Um, and pick out, you know, 10, 15 things, whatever that really feel like, I think I was onto something. I think this is foundational. This is the hardwood floor of my creativity. And, uh, and, and then create, and then take some of your biggest influences that those visceral things, some are guilty pleasures, some are things from childhood, but they're the things that hit you, whether they, you wish they did or not. And then mash those up. I want you to create not just a mood board, but one thing that's helped me and it's, it has been foundational for me to use the metaphor uh, is we have done what um, some of my creative heroes have done. Taika Watiti, who created Thor Ragnarok and, and Hunt for the Wilder People. Good God, man. If you haven't seen that movie, go see it. It's freaking good. And Jojo Rabbit, Taika is a creative hero of mine. And one of the things they did for Thor was create like a mood trailer to prime everybody to know like, this is kind of what we're going for. You know, little scenes of things that had moved him and felt right and hit that a priori visceral taste. And they cut it to a song that had the right vibe that hit him on a visceral level. And that's how he pitched the movie. And actually the people from Stranger Things did the same thing. And even if you're not pitching for anybody, you need to cleanse that palate and get back into a fresh perspective on what do I love and what do I want and what moves me at a deep level and cut away all those layers. So what I want you to do, you know, for me as an illustrator, that might be, I'll take 10 of those pieces. I'll take 10 other things from my childhood, guilty pleasures, maybe one or two new things sprinkled in there and then create a little slideshow, play it to music put some movie clips maybe in there from different mediums and create this little uh, mood video primer that helps get me into the zone. Sometimes I'm like, I don't even know why I make pictures for for a living. What the heck am I doing? I don't care about that. It's because you don't care about that. What you care about is people. You care about connection. And what you need to remember is how those things connected to you, how they worked on you. And so when I'm in that mode, I can't remember why I made pictures. I got to make another picture today. I go back to these primers. I go back to, I look for even, 
yeah, new stuff. I go look for what stuff that is connecting to me on a visceral level and just remember what it's like to feel again. That's what you make these things for. But get in all those different mediums, set it to some music, make sure that you, you what you need, it's the same for this podcast. Sometimes I go to make the podcast, I'm like, I don't even freaking care about creative people, man. What about me? I'm, you know, getting to this place of I forget. There's so much stuff added that I forget what was, I think about these people living in a house that we uh, had moved into and I thought they didn't even know that those hardwood floors existed, man. They didn't even know what they had. They forgot all that stuff piled up on time. You will forget the truth. And when I start going to make an episode and I can't remember why I make this podcast, I go through the sharpening of the ax, you know, spend some of that time. I think it's, I don't remember where this comes from, George Washington or something. It's like, you've got two hours to cut down a tree. How you spend your time? Well, I spend the first hour and a half sharpening the ax. Are you sharpening the ax? Are you remembering that you're getting into this game for a human reason, for a visceral reason, for an a priori reason? Get back and remember why you're doing this by getting in touch with, and you haven't done the work, the mood board's not done, the mood video, the primer hasn't happened until you are feeling something. And when you've got that, now it's time to go to the drawing board. All right, the third thing you gotta do is you gotta really look below the surface. Really understand that what makes a creative thing great is usually not what it seems to be. There's this really great quote from Percival Wilde that says, there is no art which does not conceal a still greater art. It's easy. This is how we end up getting into this veneer thing, slapping on extra layers of that'd be cool, that'd be cool, that'd be cool. Because we don't understand that what makes great art great isn't what it looks like on the surface. It's not what it seems to be. And I want to explain that a little bit. Uh, but when we were moving into this first house, one of the things that happened was we thought, well, we like dark wood floors and what color do we like on walls and what, you know, what lighting fixtures do we like? And, and every single decision was a surface level decision and we neglected the design principles that weave everything together. You know, looking at houses that we actually loved, we realized it wasn't just an amalgamation of a bunch of individual surface level choices of I like that and I like this, I like that. It's what walls, if that's the hardwood floor, what works with that? What, you know, if, if the hardwood floor is going to be dark, what do the walls need to be in contrast? And what do the fixtures need to be? And what does the furniture need to be? There's a greater theory and philosophy that weaves everything together than just all these individual surface level choices. And when we moved into the next house, we realized we can't just go in there and say, well, I like this, this, and this. Throw them together, you got a house. No, you got to have some, a, a deeper sense of composition and taste and design principles. And what I want you to do is, and what I've been doing, what I practice all the time, is getting below the surface of what is the real art. 
We have a podcast on our podcast network, Coloop Podcast Network, called You Are a Storyteller. And it's really about the perspective of this story expert, Brian McDonald, who's done a lot of consulting for Disney and Pixar and all these great pieces of work. And that's where I got that quote. It's at the start of the book. It's one of my favorite quotes of all time. Uh, The book that he wrote is called Invisible Ink. Invisible Ink is all about the things that make stories great are not the things that you see. They're the invisible things. To the, to the lay person who doesn't understand story or really think much about it, they're going to talk about the things you can see. Everybody, when they talk about story, they talk about dialogue and character. Those things are important, but those are surface level things and they're determined by deeper philosophical ideas and deeper visceral principles around what makes a good story. It's not the stuff you see, but it's the stuff that counts. Let me explain how this works in illustration. You know, when I first started making these collections of things that hit me on a visceral level, I just thought, uh, oh, I like when stuff is hidden. I like when characters are hiding. I looked back to, you've probably heard me talk about on this show, there's a page uh, in this book, A Walk It In My Pocket by Dr. Seuss. Um, Have you heard of it? Have you read Dr. Seuss? (laughs) I love talking about, pontificating about Dr. Seuss is like, I don't know, I feel so funny and stupid, but I mean it, I love it. And uh, there's a page in that where there's a vug under the rug and it's a rug with a little creature in there and you never get to see what the creature is. And what I realized is on the surface, what I liked was a character hiding. What I liked was what I could see on the surface. What I, that's what I thought. And so that's what I started putting a lot of characters hiding behind stuff in my work. And yeah, that kind of did some stuff. But what I really liked, it wasn't in the words. It wasn't in the story. It wasn't in the pictures. What I liked was what happened in between the words and the pictures. What happened between I could he- what I could hear in the story and what I could see in the pictures and what's in between what I can hear and I can see? My brain. It's it, the space in between those things. The art happened inside of my head because it created the word saying there's a rug under this rug and the picture of the rug meant that all it created my imagination went on fire to be like what is under there and it created a chemical reaction in my brain and so when i go create illustration now i just made an episode art for a recent show it's a guy who's bird watching and it says don't look back and he's bird watching he's got binoculars but he's looking some other way something else like caught his attention he's looking backwards and he's missing the moment where the bird flies that he's looking for right in front of him. And what I love about that piece of work is that what the point of that work isn't in the work. It's in your head. The point of the work is don't look back. Isn't the point is don't look back because you might miss what's right in front of you. The main point of the piece isn't even on the surface. It isn't even in the piece. It's in you. It asks you to participate. And I found the same thing happens with comedy and storytelling. What I have been obsessed about doing is getting below the surface of what's actually working on me. And there are stories that I've listened to, public speakers tell that I'm like, oh my gosh, that hit me on such a deep level. I just cut that little bit out and I just play it back again and again and again. And what I've found is that the best storytellers and the best comics 
They set up the premise. They, they build it up to the punchline. And a millisecond before they tell you the punchline, you get the joke in your head. And there's this sensation that happens where you're getting the joke. And right before you can finish that thought, they finish it for you. And it creates this crazy sensation. But again, it's not in the joke. It's what's happening in the audience. And yes, I get that it's kind of overwhelming to be like, I don't know how, I don't even know where to start on that, but it is just fun. And even the best storytellers, the best comedians don't get that right every time. It's a ongoing practice of hitting that target, trying again and again. What makes creativity interesting is that you cannot do it every time, is that it is an art it is a, it, it's a beautiful thing when those pieces come together just so, it's so choice. That's what you're going for. That's why it's so fun. If you could do it every time, it'd be an assembly line. That's not fun. That's not interesting. That's not meaningful. We're looking to create those moments that are beyond the sum of its parts. And that's what part of this experiment is all about and what, what makes this a fun exploration and journey and makes those moments so special is that they don't happen all the time. And so what I want you to do is look below the surface. Go find in your pieces and the pieces of your heroes, not what they're saying, not their point. You're not going to steal their perspective or their message or their experience, but you should be learning for, from the techniques because guess what? They didn't make them up either. The mechanics of how their stuff works. Do you think Dr. Seuss was the first person to play between the space of the words and the pictures? Almost every good picture book doesn't work unless you have the words and the pictures. It's a fundamental foundation, but that's invisible ink. Most people don't even know it, but go look at your favorite picture book stories. You know, Rosie's Walk is one of my favorites. It's a story about a a hen walking. If you just have the text, it's just a, a hen going about her day. But with the pictures, you can see that she is all along the way foiling a fox's plan to eat her. But it never says that in the text. So what is the invisible ink of your practice? What was the invisible ink of your heroes? Go back and viscerally use your body as a tool. And look at everything and, and try to unearth what happened. Where did it happen in me? What did this thing do in me? Because the thing that is great about this piece of work isn't on the canvas. It's in me. And it's your job to, to go through that and identify when and where and how those things occurred within you. All right. The fourth thing I want you to do to get good at connecting and and really making work that has the good stuff below the surface. It's a practice. And to make it a practice, you got to do it regularly. And the only way I know how to do that is to create some deadlines. Create some deadlines. I don't know about you, but in lockdown, our house got messier. Our house got messier. You know why? Because we didn't have any deadlines. My wife is from England. Usually once, twice a year, her family comes over and stays in our house. And that is a deadline to wrap up those freaking projects, to get the walls painted, to move that guest room around, to get new, you know, whatever, get it all prepared. You got to have deadlines, man. You got to invite some people over and you got to do it on a regular basis because the longer you go without 
having to show up and actually try to hit that target, the more out of practice you're going to be and the more things are going to pile up and pile up and pile up until you forget what was good underneath of all that stuff. And so what I want you to do is set up some target practice. Take the constraints. You've learned, you've taken stuff from all these different steps. You know some of the basic ingredients. You need to set up a project where there's an ongoing reoccurring deadline of saying every Monday I go to the open mic and go to the club and and I try these jokes out. There are these exceptions to the rule. People like Radiohead. Everybody wants to be Radiohead, but I got to tell you what, Tom York, unless that's you on the other side of this podcast, you are not Radiohead. I hate using the lottery winners as the exception and trying to make them the rule. Do you have any idea how many times I hear people say, you know, it's all about just making Kid A out of OK, after OK Computer, just reinventing the game. That's what it's about. Give me one more example. One more. And then you tell me you're going to be that example. No. Creativity for 99 out of 100 of us, the people that we, the people that weren't born being Tom York, which is almost everyone, creativity is about stacking up failures. That's what it's about. And doing it in real time, testing it in real time, getting it out there. For me, if I did not have a weekly podcast that I said, hey, show up next Wednesday. There's going to be another podcast. Do you know how messy my talk house, my, my, my public speaking house would pile up and get? You've got to invite people over. You've got to make it a regular process and, and a regular practice. And the thing is, I never post a podcast that I don't believe in. I don't. I don't just ship garbage. Sometimes it does mean, you know, spending, uh, getting up early on a Sunday and cleaning that house until they get there Monday morning, right? Like there are lots of days when you're having to put in the extra time. But creating that deadline means that you actually do it. And so what I want you to do is set up some target practice, get all the ingredients, get all the cans, set them up on the wall and just practice hitting that target, practice publishing, practice actually trying to create that chemical combustion within your audience where the good stuff actually happens. Actually make it a practice and set up some regular deadlines and publish those things. And everything you make, here's the thing, every single thing that you put out there on these deadlines is not going to hit the target. But I can tell you this, do y'all have any idea how many times we published a podcast where I was like, man, I don't know, I'm embarrassed, it was so vulnerable, and I don't, I just don't know, am I crazy? Am I the only one that cares about this? And those are usually the episodes. I rarely don't know which pieces of work I make that are going to hit the target until I pull the trigger. I don't like these. I don't like this analogy. I'm uncomfortable with it, but, but you get the point. Okay. You've actually, you, you know, you've spent all the time sharpening the ax. You need to take a swing at it and see if this thing has what it takes to chop that creative tree down. Give yourself some deadlines. Stick to the deadlines. Number five.
five, our last point is create some motifs. Use motifs in your work. Motifs are just a pattern, okay? There's a room in our house. It's our bedroom. Do you have one of these? I don't know. <laughs> I was doing it like a TED Talk. In our house, we have a room. It's four walls. It, it has a, if you can imagine, a bed in there. That's where we sleep. It's called the bedroom. In my bedroom, there's one wall in that bedroom that is just magnifique. It's, uh, it is a, there's a big, large print. It's Ziggy collecting stars. You know, Ziggy from the comics. It's an old print. We got it at a thrift shop. It's in this blue frame with this blue night sky background and he's got a net and he's ca he's catching stars it's it's old school but it feels like mystical and fresh and cool to me and i freaking love that and then next to that print is this like paper mache uh star that's the that's the same blue but it's got it's covered in stars as well but it kind of has a 90s lane smith you know stinky cheese man kind of thing with like the dots for teeth that little section is so good. I freaking, I just, there's something about what is going on in that section that I like. And so I started to uncover, what do I like about it? Well, I like that it's the the print's flat, but then the, the paper mache is like 3D, flat next to the 3D. I like that they play off of each other, but they're from different eras. What's the thing that makes this good? After I understand that, after you get below the surface and figure out why does this look so good, don't just leave it there. Go into the next room. You're not going to put another Ziggy print next to a star in the next room, but you can look for stuff where how can we put something flat next to something with some dimension? How can we mash up some different eras that have a through line creatively with color or subject matter? Like you're learning these patterns and those patterns become an ongoing motif in your work. You know, I heard uh, you, everybody knows I'm a huge Jim Henson fan. And Jim Henson was obsessed with doing new stuff. I just heard his son, Brian Henson, on a show saying that, you know, one of the things they think a lot about is like, never repeat yourself. And I do think that that's good advice. And I do think that that is what uh, Jim Henson was all about. But in another way, on a totally other side, they were the kings of repeating themselves. You know, it's not either or. They're, so often you're talking about two different things because, yes, they were always trying to push the technology. They were always trying to tell new stories. Yes, they were trying to do things they'd never done. But they also copied themselves over and over. Kermit was a character when it was one of his first puppets gone through tons of iterations. Like Kermit early days had human feet, wasn't even a frog. And what happened is over time, they picked and choose their best things. As you've shown up and you've hit those deadlines, what you want to go do is you want to sift back through all those podcasts you made, sift back through all that episode art and cherry pick the times that you really hit the target and then carry on with that. I'm watching all the Marvel movies with my daughter. We just finished Guardians of the Galaxy 2. And uh, I also just saw James Gunn, who made both of those movies. They, he made the new Suicide Squad. And I watched the trailer for that. And it looks really good for a DC movie. I don't even watch any of the DC movies. Not really my jam. Never been a DC guy. But the trailer looks so good and why it looks so good is partially because it looks like guardians of the galaxy but i don't feel like my as a fan 
of those movies. I don't feel like, oh, that's just Guardian of the Galaxy again. No, I think that's James Gunn. He's doing his thing. Yes, he's got some new material. He didn't just throw up another Ziggy and star paper mache, but he did use the motifs that work for him. And we call that Alfred Hitchcock. He says, style is just plagiarizing yourself. That's what style is, is copying yourself. And so go back, keep showing up and doing that target practice, and then go back to the times that you've hit that target and learn and pull and steal from yourself as you're going forward. And what I want you to do ultimately is create some spinoffs. You know, the most successful thing a brand can do is not come out with a new bag of potato chips, but a new flavor of Doritos. Okay, (laughs) it's so much more profitable. I'm not saying that's all you should do, but you allow yourself to do that. You're going to get some really interesting things in the Mandalorian that would never happen if you just created a totally new show that was not was completely outside of Star Wars. Yes, I do think that the mainstream media has fallen off the deep end in spinoffs, but artists often are so afraid to repeat themselves that they never have any motifs. They never have any style. They're always trying to reinvent the wheel. Instead of figuring, you know, creating a utility belt of stuff to work from. And so don't be afraid to rip yourself off a bit and learn from yourself and create some motifs. You know, the truth is every great artist does this, but often it's in these motifs are invisible ink. Even if it's not a a Mandalorian, it's not even a spinoff in a direct way. Think about things like Parks and Rec. Parks and Rec was actually originally designed as a spinoff from The Office. In the first season, you can kind of see that. They thought there might even be some overlapping characters. But most people don't even know that the guy who created Parks and Rec, Michael Schur, who also created The Good Place, is Moe's, Dwight's cousin from The Office. That's the guy who created it. And he created it with the intention of it being a spinoff. And so you could create something that has the spirit of a spinoff. It doesn't have to be a copy. It doesn't have to be the same print. It's a motif. Roll with the best things from the last thing you made and then subtract the things you didn't like and then start to get additive. This whole process is go back through, you know, make sure you're doing target practice. And once you've done a bunch of target practice, go back and subtract all the times you didn't hit the bullseye. Learn from the times you did. And then and only then start adding new stuff. You do that long enough, you are going to get some breakout successes like the Muppets. The Muppets was like the biggest show in the world. It was a sensation across the globe, but it didn't happen from never repeating, doing completely new stuff every single time. It came from subtracting, not adding at the start, subtracting all the stuff that didn't work. You know, Kermit was one of like four or five characters from Jim Henson's early public access show. And he subtracted all the characters that didn't work and he put Kermit in the next thing and they did that over and over they did all these specials it was a process of subtracting not just doing new stuff not just never repeating themselves it's a it's a ebb and flow of that and it's not just a this or that it's a process it's a story it's a it's a thing that develops over time 
stay priori, start with the stuff, go all the way back, find the essence, find the things that you were onto something years ago, strip it back. Then prime yourself. Don't just, you know, start on that raw wood. You got to prime this thing, man. <laughs> Sounds weird, weird. But, you know, take, get that ginger, clean that palate, feel it fresh. Know what this thing's about. You're convoluted. You're, all those layers over time, you got mixed up. Number three, look below the surface for the thing. Look for the stuff that is happening, not just on the page, but inside of you. Number four is give yourself some deadlines. Tell some people to come stay with you so that you have to finish that guest room. You gotta, you gotta create that ongoing thing for it to become not just um, creativity, but a practice of creativity. And the last one is don't be afraid to explore motifs. Don't be afraid to copy yourself. That's the definition of style. And, and we all want that. We all want to have something that is our essence, that where we show up and we have some consistency because this is who we are. There's parts of you that you are who you were when you were six and you'll be the same in some ways when you're 90. And yeah, all your experiences will filter those things. So you always have new takes, new, new uh, stories to tell, but there's an essence that's below all that that we're trying to get at that, that, that is this human thing. And so if you are looking at your back catalog, looking at the portfolio, checking out your collection and something just smells off, like what is going on? It is hard to know what's going on when you've built up those layers upon layers upon layers. It's so easy when you take the easy way out and you just add veneer and you try to stay up with the times and you, you take the shortcut to put a fresh coat of carpet on that thing. It is so easy for things to start to go off in between the layers of that stuff. It's so easy for mold to grow in your creative practice when you got all these layers that you can't even see. So start peeling that stuff back, start uncovering. When you pull back that final layer of carpet and you see those gorgeous wood floors, I'm telling you, man, it feels amazing. When you get to the foundation of what you're creating from, when you're not just trying to be cool, but you're trying to connect and you really do, you really hit that target, the feeling of putting something from your soul into another soul. Like when they come back and you say, man, you know what happened when I looked at that picture? I had this internal combustion. You're like, yeah, I know, I planned it. I've been desperate for it. When someone show, when you really hit that target, all of this freaking pulling back the layers is going to be worth it. Creative Pep Talk is part of the CoLoop Podcast Network. CoLoop is a network of creative podcasts designed to fuel your creativity. Thanks to Yoni Wolf and the band Y for our theme music. Thanks to Sophie Pizza, my loved one, and Ryan Appleton for my other loved one, Ryan Appleton. Um, <laughs> I love you, Ryan. Oh, and Katie Chandler for content assistance. Massive thanks to Connor Jones for editing this show so beautifully. And thanks to all of you for tuning in until we speak again. You know what you gotta do. Stay pepped up. <laughs> <laughs>